it's, um, we're coming down the final stretch, okay? And I like to think of the, the last 12 verses of Romans 8 as like, um, kind of like a final ascent up Mount Everest, okay? It's like uh, you get to the top and it's, you know, you look around and there's nothing above you. You can see for miles on end. And because I think that there, there are some promises, soaring promises here at the end of Romans chapter 8 that help give us perspective on life, perspective in the midst of difficulties, perspective of God's overarching purposes that I think are really helpful for us. Uh, otherwise, we kind of get stuck in tunnel vision, our life and what we're going through and not when we can't see God's grand purpose in all things and through all things, you know, we, we kind of, kind of get stuck or we kind of become more inward focused and so these promises are grand and glorious Um, several years ago I climbed uh, to the top of Mount Elbert in Colorado everyone heard Mount Elbert okay well there's like 40 some 14,000 foot peaks in, in Colorado Elbert's the tallest of all of them it's taller than Pikes Peak believe it or not um and uh, I think it's the second tallest peak in the continental U.S. Mount Whitney out in Washington's a bit taller. But Mount Obert, it's, it's quite a hike. Reed and Luke and I did this several years ago. And when you get to the top of Mount Elbert, and it's a, if it's a clear day, if it's clear at all, you can see in every direction. And there's no piece of dirt above you, right? There's no earth above you. You're above everything in that area. And you can see for miles on end. And I think the promises of Romans chapter 8 as we near the end, it's kind of like that. It helps us in an enormous sort of way. They'll give you a faith-emboldening perspective and a sense of awe and courage to face all of life with a bold and unapologetic faith. And that's what we want, is we want not a timid faith, not a faith that we're kind of, you know, kind of treading through life, always concerned if it's going to work out okay. No, no, we want to move forward with a bold and unapologetic faith. Romans 8, the promises of Romans 8, give us that. We're going to look at a good promise today. It's glorious, but I want to just kind of whet your appetite for the weeks to come as well and give you a sneak peek of some of the promises we're going to look at in the next several weeks we get to our next few weeks we talk are in Romans 8 Romans 8 32 says this listen to this he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all that's talking about the death of Christ that's talking about Jesus or sorry the father delivering Christ up to go to the cross for you and I if the father didn't withhold his own son how will he not also with Christ Freely give us all things. That might be my favorite. (laughs) That is an astounding word for us. How can it be? God will make it so. He promises. Romans 8, 37, just, you know, just a bit later. After listing a, a, a series of events and circumstances that Christians face, and we do, I mean, to some degree, certainly Paul faced all of them. In fact, Paul faced all of them as he wrote Romans 8, except the last one, which was death. He says, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? He says, no. In all these things, 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not once we get to the other side of these things, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Isn't that a a wonderful promise? I mean, isn't that an astounding promise? It's hard to even wrap our minds around that. And then the very last verse of the chapter, uh, verse 39, Paul says, nothing in all of creation, no created thing, okay? And there's really only two broad categories. There is the creator, and then there's created things. No created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that is glorious beyond all measure. You probably have heard some of those before. If you've been here for any length of time, certainly you've heard me repeat Romans 8.32. I think there's like a series of five sermons where I quoted it every sermon. It just seemed to fit. It fits everywhere. Oh, Romans (laughs) 8.32. But today we're going to look at maybe one of the most familiar promises in all the Bible. In fact, besides John 3.16 and maybe, you know, Psalm 23 and a few other passages, this is a really, really well-known verse. Even people who don't know where it's at, many have heard it, churchgoers and those who don't go to church. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Brothers and sisters, there may be no promise in all the Bible that is more exhaustive and far-reaching than this. There is no end in sight to the sweet comfort this can give us and that it's meant to give us if we'll have it. In every trouble, every affliction, but it's not just the trouble and affliction, in every situation, every circumstance. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, wrote a book on this verse called All Things for Good. And he calls the promise of this verse God's divine cordial. Cordial is like a medicine, like a spoonful of medicine. God's divine medicine. This verse speaks of the exhaustive, absolute sovereignty of God in all things. God is sovereign. And not just because he assumes the title of king, he certainly has the title of king, but because he actually is king and reigns and rules. You know, King Charles in England, Queen Elizabeth died, he's now on the throne, and he's king, but he doesn't really have any power. I mean, he really doesn't, I don't think. He certainly doesn't reign and rule with authority. God is not like that. He is king, and he reigns and rules. He's not a figurehead. He reigns and rules. And he has a plan and a purpose that he's working out. We were talking yesterday at men's study, and Reed brought up just, we were looking at John the Baptist and God's call of him, and Reed brought up just how God is patient in working out his purposes and plans. We are often extremely impatient. God is patient in working. Like hundreds of years before John the Baptist came on the scene, it was prophesied that he would come. 
God is working out his plan and purpose in the world. And he's doing so certainly for his glory, no doubt. But this text, and I love this, this text says he's doing, he puts the accent on the fact that God is doing that for our good. I mean, it is for his glory. I mean, that's like, that's most important, right? Is that he has a purpose for his glory. But he's doing it for our good. We have an idea of what's good for us and how we would arrive at that destination. God does as well. And we want to trust his plan, his purposes. He's working out everything together for the good of everyone who's in Christ. Now, let's face it, this is not a doctrine that is readily accepted by everyone. I think the biblical evidence of its truthfulness is overwhelming. It's really hard to get around from Genesis to Revelation. You know, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, the, the, the gospels, the letters, it's everywhere. But at a personal level, we, struggle, we can struggle with it, and I actually, I get that, because I have. You know? We struggle with the thought of God allowing evil suffering and accomplishing his good purposes through it. We struggle with the idea of, well, if God is sovereign in that way, how I live or prayer or evangelism or all these things, they must not really matter. But that would be a seriously wrong conclusion. We're not forced to choose between this truth or that truth. And listen, where our minds, because we're finite, does anyone here ever feel like my mind, my thinking is capacity is very limited? Anyone else? Okay, where our minds can't make the connection of truths that seem to be at odds, the best course of action is to be like Job and put our hands over our mouths and just worship God. Humbly and in reverence to God. I love what Spurgeon said when he was pressed by someone. He said, somebody, somebody said to him, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And he said, I don't even try. Why should I try to reconcile friends? These, these truths are not, these truths are both, they're both true. We are responsible before God and we will be held responsible before God for how we live and for trusting him and all of that. And yet God is sovereign. So these truths are not enemies. They're not even cold, indifferent neighbors. They're friends and they work together. So all that said, Romans 8.28 highlights without question God's sovereignty, not our responsibility. Our responsibility matters, but it highlights God's sovereignty, and so that's what we're going to look at today. God is sovereign in all things for our good, and this is meant to be a deep comfort. It's meant to be God's divine cordial in the course of our lives as we face all things, as we face all things, trusting that all the events of our lives are part of God's masterpiece tapestry, which will redound to his glory and will be for our highest good. 
So, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, speaking of Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in these verses, we see four things, at least, that I, but four things I want to draw out this morning. First, the promise. What is the promise? Second, the promiser, the one who makes the promise. Third, the recipient. Who's, who is this promise made to? Now, the answer you might say is obvious, but it's described a certain way in this verse. The recipient. And fourth, what's the outcome if we really believe this? So let's look at these one at a time. First, the promise. The promise is this. All things work together for good. I just would say, for your good if you're in Christ. All things work together for Good. This promise covers so much real estate, right? For it does not limit the promise. The promise is not limited to some things or most things or good things or bad things or really big things or no. It's all things. In fact, there's nothing here in the context, and I would suggest there's nothing in the rest of the Bible that would put a single qualification on these words, all things. It is truly all things. Think about what that means. A necessary corollary to this is that nothing can ultimately work against us. All things are working for good, so nothing can, in an ultimate sense, I get it, in the macro sense, it's like, or micro sense, I'm sorry, the micro sense is like, this is working against me, but in the macro sense, in the big picture, nothing can ultimately work against us. Have you ever, have you ever been in the midst of something that was enormously painful? I know you have. And then there was, the dust settles, you're on the other side of it, and you look back and you see, I see God, in the midst of that, working good for me. That's what this is saying. It's promising that he does. Whether suffering or persecution or deprivation or loss, all things outside of us that act against us work for our good. Like I said, down just about a paragraph later in verse 35, Paul lists some things. And these are things that Paul all experienced ex- well, when he wrote this, except he hadn't had his head cut off yet. He hadn't experienced a sword yet, but everything else he did. He said, he li- here's his list, tribulation, distress. Those are kind of more general words about just trouble. Persecution, famine, like no food, nakedness, exposure, danger, and the sword. That's a pretty daunting list. But we can confidently say, should we ever face any of these things? No doubt we've, we've faced tribulation and difficulties and trials, but should we face any of, any of these things in a hot and overwhelming way, we can be confident that they will work for our good. 
But I think more needs to be said. Of course, there are things that happen to us where we kind of feel like we're the victims in a situation, right? Something's happening to us. Somebody is, right, somebody's filing a lawsuit or somebody is coming against us or we lose a job. We didn't do anything to lose it, but we got fired and and this is a hardship. Things happening to us. We feel like the victims in circumstances we're being ravaged by others, even by unseen demonic forces. There are, these are some of the all things. But then there are the things that we ourselves have done. Our failure. Even our lack of faith. Even, even big sins. God in his mercy and wisdom and goodness works these things together for our good as well. It's all things. I heard somebody once say, I like this, God is able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick. You and I can't do that, but God can. And we ought to be incredibly grateful for that. Think about this. Would the Apostle Paul, would he have been the Apostle Paul had he not been Saul of Tarsus, arresting Christians and having them thrown in jail and having them executed? Would he have been the Apostle Paul that wrote wrote half of the New Testament? I would suggest no, he wouldn't have been. I love the two words, work together. All things work together. It's not just that all things work, but all things work together. Some translations omit the word together. And I think that's a mistake. Um, Because the words work together, those two words come from one Greek word, and the word is synergeo. Synergeo. We get the English word um, synergy from that Greek word. You guys know what synergy is, right? It's when two or more things work together, and working together, those things can accomplish more than all of the the sum of the individual parts on their own. So here's an example. One draft horse can, this is what I read, okay, can pull about 8,000 pounds, okay? So you might think, okay, a little kid who's learning math, say, well, okay, two draft horses working together, what can they pull? 16,000, right? It's obvious. But it's not obvious. Those two draft horses working together can pull at least 24,000 pounds. And I've heard that if, if, they, if they're trained together, those two horses could pull up to 32,000 pounds. 8,000 on their own, 32,000 together, if they're trained well together. That's synergy. All things work together, synergistically, in that way, for our good. So it's not like one thing is working for our good and then at a later time in the future, something else is kind of working individually for our good to teach us this lesson and then at at a point like 10 years down the road, that's going to kind of work too. It's all of these things working together for our good. It's all these things producing a greater good then all of the things individually could work or produce if you added up the sum of each of them individually. 
And brothers and sisters, it really is for our good. It really is for our good. The all-wise God is working for your good. Jesus said, if you as evil fathers know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to his children? It's for our good. And now, this needs to be said. It's not that the things are good in themselves, but that God's working in and through them for good. And this is the truth. If you're in Christ, there is divine power being exerted on your behalf in all things for your highest and greatest good. And I would say, not just in the future, it is in the, for the good, your good in the future, but it's also for your highest and greatest good now and for eternity. I think some believe that God, when it's all said and done, just kind of takes all the things that happen, puts them in a hat, kind of jumbles them together, and ta-da, makes good come out of it. But it's not like that. I heard somebody once say, um, kind of along those lines, I heard somebody once say that, you know, God can win with any hand that he's dealt. And again, that seems to imply that God figures out after the fact how to win with the cards he has. My question is, who's dealing the cards? Yikes. Here's what's so sweet about this. In the midst of one of the all things, we can say, God is not far away. God is not distant. He is here with me. He is working for my good even right now. This is the hand of sovereignty in real time. And it's for our good now into eternity. That's the promise. All things work together synergistically for good. Let's look at the promiser. Well, the promise, the the one who makes the promise, um, even though some translations um, don't explicitly say God, I hope it's clear. It's not just that, you know, um, the blind watchmaker sort of thing where they're just, it's just happening and it's gonna end up for our good but we don't really know how. No, it's because God's the one who makes this promise. The promise is connected to the one who makes it and can keep it. The only promises we can stand secure on are the ones that God has made. And so how do we know that all things work together for our good? Well, we can say because God said and amen. The Bible says it, we trust it, praise God. But I think we can also say because God is the one who underwrites it and guarantees it. God in his sovereignty, not only sovereignty, though also his wisdom and his goodness guarantees the promise. And I think those are the three attributes. Sovereignty, wisdom, goodness 
Those are the three attributes of God that, that are brought together in this promise. God is sovereign. There's no, he has no rival. We sang it earlier. All thrones and dominions, all powers and positions, your name, his name is above all of them. He has no rival. God is wise. He knows the end from the beginning. He's declared the end from the beginning. And God is good. He always does good. The promise would be merely wishful thinking or a worldly hope if God was not sovereign. If God was not ultimately in charge and could bend things to his will and so forth and does not have the power to work all things for good, then there is no solid foundation for the promise. He might try to fulfill the promise. He may want to do certain things, but he can't. And if God does not have the wisdom to know what's best, and the right course of action to take for my best good, then there's no solid foundation for this promise. And if God is not good in all that he does, there's no solid foundation for this promise. But our God is all of these things. He is sovereign, and he is the all-wise God, Paul says in Romans 16. All wisdom comes from him. All wisdom that we derive, we derive from him because he's the all-wise God and he is good. And this ought to be a great encouragement to us. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. um, I think it was a devotional he wrote on this verse. He said, upon some points a believer is absolutely sure. He knows, for instance, and I hope we know this and rest assured in this. He knows, for instance, that God sits on the stern sheets of the vessel when it rocks most. He believes that an invisible hand is always on the world's tiller, and wherever providence may drift, Jehovah steers it. That reassuring knowledge, listen to this, that reassuring knowledge prepares him for everything. We're gonna get to that later, but that, the, the knowledge of this prepares us for everything. It gives us a bold faith not a timid faith. The promise that all things work together for good is, is, is only good news because the God who made it has the power to keep it is wise to know what's good and actually intends good for us. Sometimes it's hard to see God working good when you're in the clinch of pain or sorrow or loss, but it's true, he is. I think, again, I think I mentioned this before, but we probably can all share an example. If we went around, we could tell stories of this. Where after the fact, we see God was working good in that. He was working good in that. After the fact, we see, we look back and we see it. Like, that really painful, hard thing, or that confusing season of life, God was working good through that. But our great privilege is not only to be able to look back, which is good to be able to look back, but I think it's also to know in the present that he's working. There's a song sung by um, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. I don't know if they wrote it or not. They probably did, but I don't know for sure. But it's called God is Working. And here's what it says. God is working, he's still working. God is working even now. 
Though we often don't know just how, God is working. He's still working. God is working even now. And that's the assurance that we have because of who our God is. Because of who our God is. This is like, this is a, this is a passage that's meant to give us a big vision of who God is. Unstoppable, unrivaled, all-wise, always good in all that he does. Brothers and sisters, we can take fresh courage from this. And that's what this truth gives us. The Lord is on our side. He's the one who promises and he will, he is well equipped to keep the promise and wise enough to know the best course and he's always working for your good. So, the promise, the promiser, who's this for? Everyone's like, well, it's for Christians. Amen. That's true. But, it must be said that this word offers no promise to those who merely say they're Christians or pretend to be Christians or are, you know, Christmas and Easter Christians or Sunday Christians or whatever. Any qualifier you put in front of that, or I guess I'd, maybe I'd put the qualifier true Christian, right? It is for those people. But it's not just for people who say they're Christians. It is for true Christians, and they're described in two ways in this verse that I think is really helpful. Paul uses two things or describes them in two ways. Uh, one seems to kind of be the outward character of who this promise is for. The other one seems to be the inward work of God that describes them. The descriptors are this. Who's this promise for? It's for those who love God and it's for those who are called according to his purpose. So it's for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for those who love God. Now I think it's striking that Paul doesn't say it works, all things work together for good to those who believe God. Or believe in Jesus. Belief, faith is necessary, no doubt. But the emphasis is put on those who love God. And I think for good reason. It's the highest and greatest commandment. It's the first thing that's evident in the life of a true Christian. Whereas before they didn't, now they love God. He's not just someone they think about or don't think about. (laughs) He's someone they love. Here's the first and greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see how loving God is with our heart and soul and might? That's what love for God is. Do you love God? Do you love him? I ask people all the, I mean, not all the time, but I ask people often, you you believing, you trusting? Even asking you that question, I don't think I ask people that very often. Do you love God? The promise is for those who love God. A person is no Christian at all, no matter what they say. 
who does not love God. In fact, the Bible teaches that a non-Christian is actually someone who's at war with God. There's hostility toward God. I think the reason why Paul puts an emphasis here on love is because Christian love, when there's real love for God, it's something that can be seen. You know, you can't really hide what or who you love. I mean, not, not forever. If you love something, you rejoice in it. If you love a person, which is better than loving things, <laughs> you rejoice in them. You enjoy them. Other people see that. They hear you talk about them. You can't hide what you truly love or who you truly love. It's just, right, it's not just something that's hidden in the heart. It's evident. A husband who loves his wife makes that known by what he does, by the sacrifices he makes for his wife. A husband, a father who loves his children, a mother who loves her children, you would go across the board. Brothers and sisters who love each other in the church, they make it known by how they respond and come around and help and bless one another. The one who loves God will show it in his life. Jesus said this, if you love me, John 14, 15, you know what he says? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Bingo. If you love me, you will do what I say. You'll do the things that I tell you. Now, nobody here is pretend, I'm not trying to pretend if you love God truly, you will never disobey. But someone, who lo- someone who's been born again, someone who has the Holy Spirit in them has been given a new inclination, a new love for God, right? Their loves have been reordered. Whereas we loved ourselves and our stuff mostly, now all of a sudden the love for God is preeminent. And it shows by how we live. Um, after his resurrection, Jesus asked Peter three times, <clears throat> do you love me, Peter? Actually, he says, do you love me more than these? I mean, because Peter said he did before. Um, And three times, Jesus, I'm sorry, three times Peter affirmed, yes, I do. Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And after each time that Peter says, yes, I love you, Jesus said, okay, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my lambs, or maybe... He says it differently than that, but each time he says, okay, show it by serving my people. So the promise that God works all things for good, which is glorious and amazing and stupendous, is for those who love God. But then Paul adds this description of the Christian as well. So it's, it's those who love God, And then it says this, all things work together for good. And then after that, it says, for those who are called according to his purpose. And I don't think this is talking about two different groups of people. Okay, you got those who love God and those who are called. It's it's talking about the same people. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. Those who are called according to his purpose are those who love God. 
However feeble our love may feel at times, we, right, right, those who are called really do love God. The word called here refers, I, I think, not to the outward call of the gospel, right? There's the, the general call of the gospel, one who proclaims the gospel. Jesus is Lord. He's come to offer peace to you through his death and resurrection, repent and believe. That's, that's a call of the gospel. I think this is talking about something else. I think it's talking about the inward work of the Spirit calling us to Christ, to put our trust in Jesus. Theologians sometimes use the phrase effectual call. The work of the Spirit drawing someone to Christ, overcoming their hardness, removing their resistance, and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, you're not called just to believe in Jesus, but to fit into his grand purpose. And this kind of brings us back to, you know, this is, it's so good for us to think not in terms of what is, what is my individual purpose. I mean, that's not unimportant. But we can kind of get stuck there. My purpose, my calling, my destiny, whatever. Whatever word you want to use. This is saying that you are called to Christ according to his purpose. That's huge. It's amazing. We need to first realize that by God's grace in Christ, you and I have been brought into God's grand purpose in human history and the world. Then we can start thinking, okay, what, how do I fit into that? What am I called to do to, to contribute to that glorious purpose? That's important. But this is saying, you and I are part of God's great purpose. I think that's pretty cool. I've heard people say, it's good for us to know we're part of something bigger. There's nothing bigger to be part of. We get a glimpse of what this purpose is. I don't think verse 29 certainly tells us everything, but what, God's, what, what is God's purpose? What is God's goal? And how do you fit into that? Verse 29 says this. It's to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is God up to? What, what is one of the good things God is up to now that he's working all things together for your good? It is this. It is to make you more like Christ. It is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. In order that Jesus, the firstborn, might be the firstborn among many brothers and ladies, you're part of that, okay? Uh, among many brothers in God's family. The one who has pl- pledged the promise to work all things together for our good. will do it. Who has God pledged this promise to? It's for those who love God and their life shows it. It's for those who have been brought to Jesus to trust in Jesus alone and are becoming more like him. Well, when you and I see the enormity of the promise to work everything together for good and the one who made it, the unstoppable God who's all wise and always good, 
in all that he does. And then when we realize this, wait a second, this promise, this promise is to me. What's the outcome? What's the outcome? Well, I would suggest it's a bold faith. It is a bold faith. And I get that from the first three words of verse 28. If you got the bulletin, because other translations, I think it might be three different words. (laughs) The ESV says this, and we know. We know this. We know this. And we know. For those, those are the words of a man or a woman of God who is full of triumphant faith. Paul does not say, well, with a shrug of the shoulders, we sure hope. No, Paul says, and we know. And so I have to ask you, do you know this? Are you fully assured? Now, when I say triumphant faith, I don't mean that isn't through tears sometimes. But we can be confident of this. We can be absolutely assured of this, or we can't be sure of anything in the Bible. If this promise is not true, how can we trust any of them? God is just like a man who makes promises and either won't or can't keep them sometimes. But we know this. We can know this. I hope we know this. In fact, I'm, you know, as we were singing earlier, these three words just kind of stuck in my mind. We, and, and we know, because I knew I was ending here. And it's like, Lord, Holy Spirit, give us this full assurance. We know this. We know this. I know this, but I want to know it more fully. I want to live confident of this more fully. I don't want to sort of believe Romans 8, 28. I don't want to have just an intellectual belief in it alone. I want it to be something that that thrusts me and you and us into a place of bold faith and living boldly for Christ. There is a missionary um, named Henry Martin. He was a missionary in like the early 1800s. He, was a, he died a young man, but he was a missionary in India and Persia. It's Persia at that time. Modern day I, Iran, I think, probably. Okay. Um, you know, in the 1800s, I mean today too, but in the 1800s, not an easy place to be. He was laboring for the Lord in pretty tough places. And he believed Romans 8.28. Listen to what Henry Martin said. I love this. He said, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. That is someone who, now he lived it too. He wasn't just saying it. I could put that, you know, like on a coffee mug and not be living it, I suppose. (laughs) But he lived it and he believed it. And I hope you do too. I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. That's a man who believes Romans 8.28. So let's believe this. Ray Ortland, who um, I don't think he's pastoring anymore. He was, pa- used to, uh, was pastoring a church in 
Tennessee for a bit, anyways. He had this to say. He said, God's overruling hand is at work everywhere in a fallen world. The providence of God is clearly taught from one end of the Bible to the other, and our confidence in the providence of God is a faith so bold, so demanding, so unapologetic that we cannot believe it without being transformed. And that's the point. We want to believe this and be transformed by it, by the renewing of our minds, right? We believe this truth. He goes on to say, either all things work for our good or nothing makes sense. So let's be bold about it. Let's either be transformed Christians or bitter skeptics because we can't just sort of believe Romans 8.28. We either believe it or we doubt it. There's no middle ground. So let's believe it because God says it and because we know the God who says it and because if we love God and we've been brought to faith in Christ, Sometimes our love and the strength of our faith feels like it ebbs and flows a bit, but we know we love God. We've been brought to faith in Christ. This is a promise that the almighty El Shaddai, the sovereign God, makes to you. So let's be bold about it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in, we rejoice in you. (laughs) We rejoice in your word and in the promise, but because you're the one, it's your word, it's your promise.